Welcome to another episode of Future Extraordinaire with me, Amit Mira, and my co-host, Daniel Marji. Today's guest is a brainiac and a hugely passionate about minerals. He's a scientist who actually stumbled upon agriculture. So the guest today we're going to have is Dr. Sam Morris, and he is absolutely fascinated by what is possible with the use of geolites and many other things around X-ray crystallography. He's done his PhD in zeolites in Scotland and currently specializes as a research fellow in Singapore Nanyang Technology University. Since arriving, he has been investigating the use of zeolites for high yields, cyclable indoor farming and outdoor gardening. Danny and I are thrilled to have with us today's podcast, Dr. Sam Morris. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you very much for the kind introduction, Emmett. And first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. Uh, and I know all the vaccine staff never get a thanks, um, but I know a lot of hard work goes into these things. So thanks to them too. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's quite fascinating in this show. We look for dreamers and the doers, right? So the folks who are kind of can imagining or reimagining the future and really making efforts and showing traction to make it happen. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do on a day-to-day basis. So I started in um, doing my PhD in St. Andrews, as you said, and I specialized in crystallography and zeolites. So crystallography is, is quite a niche subject, but incredibly important for the world as we know it. So it's how insulin was found. It's how DNA was understood. And so it's the process of firing x-rays at crystals. And they cast a pattern, which is quite similar to the stars in the night sky. And from the position and intensity of those stars, you can find out where the atoms are within the structure. And so it's really fundamental science. And so I started doing that and I loved it. I got to travel the world and, and then that led me to Singapore, where I now work as a crystallographer within the material science department. But 30% of my time, I can do what I wish with. So it, it's, it's quite free in that respect. And so me and my professor, when I first joined, we looked into using zeolites for uh, a different application. Typically, they're used in the oil industry, really big catalysts. But now we wanted to use them for helping the earth in a way. So we looked at outdoor greening and indoor farming. And so it was, it was a completely different change of, of perspective for me. I went from looking at tiny atomistic changes, which had big differences to me. Uh, the movement of one atom can make an entire property of a material change. And then now I have to start thinking about large systems and how soils worked and how zeolites could operate in that respect. And so it's been a very interesting adventure for me. And now I have three postdocs and, and one PhD student and the, and the group, is, group is going well. How does one get started into this and, and how did you get uh, interested in the space? Of course, it seems like that this could have amazing application in the future. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But how did you decide to go into the space? So initially, there was a call by NPARCS, and NPARCS wanted a lightweight uh, substrate, so a, a replacement for soil, that could grow plants outdoors under the Singapore sun for 28 days without watering. And they needed all of this to be light enough that it could fit on top of a bush shelter. So we thought the zeolites could be the answer. And that's kind of where the, the whole journey began. And from that work, I was contacted by Panasonic, to help do indoor farming work with them. So the NPARC work went very well, surprisingly well, actually. We, we managed indoors in a, in a greenhouse, sorry, uh, we managed 42 days of drought resistance. And then 
Now outdoors, we're, we're currently doing it and we're at 22 days and counting. So we're, we're certainly succeeding and it's going, uh, yeah, well. So what is the reason why you're so passionate about this? Give me like two kind of amazing outcomes you see if it is mainstreamed in terms of technology and the uses. Well, I think generally zeoponics, first brought up by NASA in the 1990s. And so when NASA do it, you know it's probably, probably worthwhile. And, and their problems are actually quite similar to a lot of cities nowadays. Their problems were that you had to have a simple system with low water usage on limited space, and you have to grow multiple growth cycles. If they wanted to grow plants going to Mars, they had to be able to grow plants on multiple cycles without changing the soil or adding in fertilizer. Zeoponics now, we've developed it such that we can have a seven centimeter depth of soil, and that's as light or as light enough that you can fit it on a bush shelter. So now we can grow plants on almost any surface within Singapore, and we know that they're drought resistant which is key for the changing climate in the future. I think zeoponics for indoors is very different. It, it's much more about that cyclability that NASA thought of and about optimizing that, really getting value for money for your substrate. So that's quite amazing because Singapore in its own right is probably one of the most challenged countries when it comes to food consumption and local production of that. You know, I think I've seen a stat that says close to 90% of food is consumed in the country, but it's imported into Singapore. And they've got some really ambitious goals around producing their own uh, nutritional needs locally in the country. How do you see the linkage around initiatives that are being done in Singapore and the research you're, being, you're seeing and, and how they can achieve some of those goals together? It's an exciting space. So Singapore, I'm sure you know, announced the 30 by 30 goal. And that's where they want to grow 30% of their food intake by 2030. And it's really ambitious. It will drive industry massively. But I think this is a, a very large caveat, is that it also needs the public. So to give you some stats on why I think it needs the public, is that indoor farming and farming in general uh, concentrates mostly on leafy veg and fish. They are the low-hanging fruit. And if you can get those, and you do all of Singapore's consumption of those, you end up with 8.4% of Singapore's food intake. If you add in all chicken and all eggs, you are only reaching 24% of Singapore's food intake. So really, you need to start introducing a lot of other new forms of intensive farming into the regime here. And that will enable Singapore to reach the 30 by 30 goal. That's quite amazing that they've now broken down the different types of uh, nutritional, uh, I guess, parts of the, the humanitarian diet and what yeah. percentages are being consumed by, <laughs> by the citizens of the country in order to figure out how to hit the goal. Um, you know, Ahmed and I have, uh, you know, spent a lot of time, uh, you know, understanding companies like Aero Farms that have been really trying to disrupt the market around vertical farming and, and, and the use of new techniques. I'm curious about your take on urban ag agriculture and, and how you see urban farming becoming a success in markets. It could be like Singapore, it could be markets all around the world, but your perspective on that and how um, you know the studies that you're doing around zeolites are potentially going to help solve some of those. I'd like to start on a little bit of a twist of that. So a lot of people think of urban agriculture purely as a, as a food-making mechanism, and, and rightly so. It, it really is impressive. You can save 95% of the water used from traditional agriculture. That's a commonly banded around stat. 
Um, and just to give some perspective on that, tomatoes, for instance, normally take 60 liters of water for every kilo that you produce. And the best vertical farms can currently do that in four liters per kilo produced. So it is a huge saving of water. I know that Aero Farms actually uh, just linked with Cargill, I think, to look at cocoa production. So cocoa production is one of the, the very worst uh, water users that you can imagine. So Amit and Danny, here is, a, here is a pop quiz. How much water do you think it needs to, to have one kilo of chocolate produced? Um, I, I don't want to know the answer because I'll just consume a kilo of chocolate <laughs> instantly. But, but I, I, I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised because it all comes from cocoa, right? Or cacao. Yeah. So, so I suspect that's coming from leaves that comes from water and therefore a significant amount, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't hazard to guess. Amit, would you be able to guess? 17,196 <laughs> liters. <laughs> Precisely, Amit. Sorry, I, I cheated. I, I googled it. I, I didn't know, but, I'm, I'm, but it's, it's a big number, though, to your point. It is astounding. So that's, that's like 58 bathtubs full of water produ to produce one kilo of chocolate. And, and that's where I think vertical farming can really uh, take a lead, is in that water saving. If they can save 95% of that value, that is extraordinary. But I think hitting outside of the food production area, a large amount of it is to do with an ecological mindset. So it's, it's a well-known principle that children and people have much better ecological ideas and uh, they're much greater attached to the climate problem if they've had interactions with nature when they were young. And so having, in, having farms all around the city, either as community gardens, on the walls of buildings, or as indoor farms, I think is super important for that aspect. Because unless we get the population on side for climate change and get them interacting with nature, I think it's a, it's a very, very tough task. So Sam, this is um, exciting. Um, clearly urban farming or some version of vertical farming which saves water and resources is, is very important given the changing climatic situation we have around the world. But tell me, what, what have you kind of being able to experiment with and create that takes the game to the next level and why you think the current approach is not good enough? So I think the, the major challenge of urban farming moving forward is it, it hits so many good points. The lack of the small use of water, no pesticides, no, no herbicides. And that's a huge deal in, in America at the moment with Monsanto and, and um, glyphosate. But what it does very badly, in my opinion, is CO2 emissions. And so just to give you some stats and, so, and some idea of the amount of CO2 emission that indoor farms can currently produce, in an open field, lettuce, for one kilo of lettuce, you produce 540 kilos of CO2. For an indoor farm, that's 5,700 kilos of CO2. So you're almost 10 times the value. But 90% of that is from the energy use, from LEDs, and from your controlled environment. So I see the way forward almost being intrinsically linked with renewable energy. As soon as renewable energy comes on course, then indoor farming becomes incredibly efficient on all fronts. And so what we're working on is doing what we can in the meantime. We're looking at increasing yield through zeoponics. We're about 30% higher than normal soil, and we can go for many, many cycles. 
And with each cycle, we have a very small loss. We're also looking at how we can introduce a circular economy. I think it's something crazy, like 74,000 tonnes of food waste in Singapore every year. Now, that's a lot of nutrients. If you can turn that into organic fertiliser, either through traditional composting or through anaerobic digesters, I think that's a really good place to start hitting this CO2 problem with indoor farming and solving that. So what's the alternative? In fact, this is the first time I heard the greenhouse gas emissions from indoor farming is so much higher than natural. Seems like nature does has it perfect in the sense it does balances its many of the challenges that uh, that that creates a more sustainable world. So tell me, how do we get the best of the both worlds, right? We can't continue to do agriculture in the current way just because weather is changing and uh, it's not going to be possible for us to get water in the quantities in the, in the past that we may have had. But at the same time, we don't want to be adding to the problem of uh, global warming. So what is the solution that help us get the best of the both? I see the future as uh, frustratingly not my own expertise currently. So I'm currently an expert at, at structures and zeolites. And the more I learn about soil science, the more I learn about microbiology, the more I realize that the microbiome is the way forward. We have to get a biological input into soils to replace traditional fertilizers. So to give you some unbelievable stats, the way that nitrogen is typically produced for world fertilizers uh, ever since World War II has been the Harbour-Bosch process. Now, this singular process... One chemical reaction accounts for 1.4% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. And if we can somehow reduce that by instead of using inorganic fertilizers, which is your typical ammonium, phosphate salts, and potassium salts, and if you could replace that with using microbes for mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria within the soil to digest all of the minerals in the soil which are naturally present and use that to feed your plant. I mean, an interesting question which often uh, asked to, to feed a student's mind, is that how does a forest grow without fertilizer? And so it's the idea that actually a forest grows by utilizing all of the microbes and fungi that are, that are in the soil that take the nutrients out of the parent rock and deliver it directly to the plant. And this is known as um, mycorrhizal association. So an interesting idea is that 80% of current crops actually are vesicular, arbuscular, mycorrhizae plants. That means they naturally form association with these fungi. And these fungi have a massive root system effectively and give the plants an opportunity to grow much faster, much more naturally, and at a pace that they want. So they're not constantly being drowned by, um, by fertilizer inputs. An interesting study in, in, in Holland pointed to how much excess fertilizer we use they showed in, that there was 450% more nitrogen, 600% more phosphorus, and 250% more potassium than a plant needs. And all of that is runoff. That all goes to waste. So that currently in big agriculture, there's a ginormous amount of waste which is costing us our planet. So it's kind of like taking 100 tablets of vitamin a day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> body not even absorbing one of them, right? In a, yeah. So. Completely. It is a fascinating to me how much we don't understand about microbiomes in the sense whether it's about the gut microbiomes and whether it's about the role microbiomes play in the entire ecosystem. 
including in the agriculture. And, you know, there has been attempt to replace chemistry with the biological systems, uh, which are clearly more sustainable. They have not failed because the aspect of control um, that we have tried to put on agriculture. So if you see a technology which can bring microbiomes to agriculture and create a better growth plan for um, for the plants based on microbiomes using rocks and crystals and, and, and turning it into a better crop and the outcome for the farmer, how do you even commercialize this? How do you even say this technology works? A lot of companies have tried to do this in the past and, and, and really have not succeeded at scale. Yeah, so it, there's over the last four or five years, you began to see larger companies taking this problem on. And before that, it was it was as you say very much in the in the niche sector. But I'm sure you've heard of regenerative agriculture coming up. And one of the big aspects of that is is no till. So tilling is where you plow the field. And so a lot of larger companies, I know uh, Kellogg's are doing this now in the US. And a lot of Whole Foods supermarkets are trying to get all of their produce to be regeneratively sustainable. And so by not doing a lot of the practices that current agriculture does, where you till the soil and that breaks up all of the fungi. So you slice and dice all of your, all of your organisms. And that's the, the real first step is to stop doing that. And the second is to always think about the microbes. The aim is to farm microbes, not farm crops. I think that's going to be the new modern farming adage. Now, a particularly difficult aspect of this is how do you know it's working? And this has always been the, the crux of the scenario in that microbiome understanding is only just in, in its infancy. And so I think it would take one very, very large fertilizer company, say, or one very large competitor to come up and drive that science so we can get a, a repeatable analysis of how microbiomes are affecting the soil and critically the fungi to plant interaction sphere, the rhizosphere. So the, so the microbiome for us is super important. It's been recently shown that Alzheimer's, multiple, multiple sclerosis, obesity, inflammatory diseases are all affected by that gut microbiome. So I think over the next 20 years, it'll be the, the science of, of microbiology in the soil which will dominate this space. There has been a lot of discussion in the past about biodynamic, no-tilling, organic, um, and then, of course, the urban farming came about. So in what way the, let's say, microbiome-focused farming differs from any of these in the past? Organic practices haven't necessarily focused on the mechanism. So all of these practices have looked at the uh, field and gone, oh, traditional inorganic uh, salt addition is bad, but they didn't necessarily investigate why. I think the real thing with microbiology is that you're grounded in science. You will be grounded by large-scale big data, the analysis of bacteria and fungi. So within one gram of soil, you have over a billion bacteria, and you can have over 110 meters of fungal strands. So this is where I think companies like Dell will really succeed, is, is helping people understand this big data analysis using AI, using machine learning, and start putting together all of these disparate pieces of information into a cohesive story to understand exactly how the microbiome is functioning within the soil and how that affects crops. And start and soon we'll start to do all the periphery around that. We'll start breeding for certain crops, breeding for better mycorrhizal association. And we could even start seeing 
specific breeding of fungi itself. I think that is a very, very exciting space. And I know that there's a company in Denmark who are doing that currently, looking at how changes in, in bacteria can affect seeding rates. So they, they change the species of bacteria and look at seeding rates as they cover the seed. I think that's, that's a fascinating space. If you like what you heard today, tune in for the second part of our conversation with Sam in our next episode. Thanks for joining us on Future Extraordinaire with me, Amit Mirha, and my co-host, Daniel Margie.